Welcome to OBS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode 26. This episode is a discussion with Jean Touriel and Justin Pettit about the story behind the evolution of OpenFlow. I should note that Jean and I are two of the three Open Networking Foundation fellows. Usually, it's not safe for more than one of us to be in a room at a time, but I was able to get special permission for this interview. On to the interview. Today I've got two guests. I've got first uh, Jean Touriel, who's been a networking researcher at HP Labs and what I think is now HPE Labs. Correct. For uh, uh, many years now. I first heard of uh, Jean uh, way back when you were doing a lot of uh, wireless work, a lot of uh, of work in in Linux in in particular. Then later I I worked with Jean on OpenFlow uh, standardization where he was the chair of the extensibility working group at ONF. Also here, I have Justin Pettit, who uh, was, in fact, the vice chair of the OpenFlow uh, standardization working group at ONF. So I should give each of you a, a chance to say a, a little bit more about yourself, if you'd like, uh, Jean. Uh, yes. Um, so uh, I, I apologize for my accent. You know, I'm being French. You don't but have to apologize <laughs> for being French. Yes. Um, but the accent, I do. Um, so yes, uh, I've started my research around the wireless LAN. On one of the first thing I did was looking at the API issue. So I, uh, you know, I was looking at wireless driver, but especially uh, the API for those drivers to communicate to user space. And so when I joined after with the OpenFlow project, you know, where we did, came a bit later and we uh, ported OpenFlow to our uh, HPE uh, switches. And we were one of the first implementation of uh, OpenFlow on uh, hardware, uh, you know, real hardware, switch hardware. Uh, I was ver- very interested in the API issue again, and that's why I got involved into, uh, in terms of uh, helping with the standard, and slowly got into the position where when the ONF was formed, I was asked to uh, manage the extensibility working group because of my experience with the implementation, also my uh, research background around APIs. So I wasn't there first uh, because uh, Justin and Ben were, were you know, already in OpenFlow before me, but it was very natural for me to call uh, Justin as the vice chair of the ONF uh, working group working on OpenFlow, which was called Extensibility because of also his deep expertise and because we're trying to work with expertise there. Hi, and so I'm Justin, and so I've uh, been working on OpenFlow like Ben since there really wasn't OpenFlow. It came out of some research that we did at Stanford with uh, Martin Casado. And so when Nasira started, uh, we were attempting to create the ability to program switches uh, remotely from a central controller. And so Ben and I were involved in the, the first implementations of the OpenFlow um, protocol and the specification. And then later on, it started you know, picking up more speed, and uh, the, the group got larger and larger. And so now I uh, continue to work on uh, Open vSwitch, which came out of some of the uh, original OpenFlow work that we did, and uh, the OVN project as well. One of the things that I think might be a little confusing and probably bears a little bit of comment is that the OpenFlow standardization working group was actually called the extensibility working group. Maybe it's worth explaining why that was. Yeah. So the original implementation of OpenFlow was done at Sanford on a on a very, uh, you know, it started simple, which is the right way to go on building more feature. But uh, it, it was defined as a somewhat of a TTKM API, but there, w- there was some uh, fixed way of doing things. You know, the, the frame format was fixed, and so it was fairly hard to add new things, which is every time you were adding new things, you had to break the protocol. So there was no backward-forward compatibility between the protocol version, which was a bit annoying. And so after all the, the work done at Stanford, which was a number of years, and I was involved in the, in the later years there, you know, when we were doing 0. 0.8.9, 0.9.0, 1.0, which were all incompatible with each other and re- required to replace those elements with a new version. Uh, we did 1.1, which was even more incompatible, and, and actually that created a rift because most implementations stayed on 1.0, didn't add up 1.1. And, uh, and so after that, the ONF was formed, and one of the charters there around OpenFlow was that you know we need to 
address the issue of the backward-forward compatibility, but also we need to address the issue that people wanted to add a lot of features because OpenFlow was addressing a subset of the feature available into hardware or software switch. So we needed a way to make things more extensible, so to be able to uh, have you know more fluidity in terms of you know adding feature, removing feature, uh, and also uh, backward-forward compatibility. And so that's why that working group was called extensibility because that was the design. And also there was the goal and using the ONF that this group was. Pro, uh, the um, manager of the core of OpenFlow, but OpenFlow was going beyond that group, and other group would be able to design extension to OpenFlow. And so, for example, the optical working group were working on optical extension to OpenFlow. Uh, the later, a wireless working group was uh, formed, which was also looking at extension of OpenFlow for wireless. So those were still OpenFlow activity, but not within the extensibility working group. So, uh, and uh, there was also, uh, also there was an hybrid working group uh, uh, earlier, which were looking at you know uh, merging traditional functionality with uh, OpenFlow functionality. And so that's why it was called the extensibility working group. But its main responsibility was to evolve the core of OpenFlow, and we never really managed to get to a model where there was a flexible core with a bunch of modules on top of it. That's what we were striving for. We never really reached that goal. I mean, we made many steps towards there to get more fl flexibility in the protocol, but we never really reached there. Yeah, and I think that that is still part of the goal of the OpenFlow Datapath Working Group today. But what I really want to talk about today is not so much what the working group did. Both of you actually were authors on a paper that talked a lot about what the working group was, and I believe that was published in IEEE Computer, um, mm -hmm. SDN and OpenFlow Evolution, a standards perspective. Yeah, you'll find that on the web. That's a very factual paper. What I'd really like to cover today is what were some of the things that the group did in, in terms of, you know, what, what was successful and maybe uh, other groups might want to consider consider uh, adopting in the future, and what wasn't as successful, and, and maybe why that was. If you look at what happened with OpenFlow, at, at one point there was a lot of uh, hype and excitement behind it, and it started to get into a lot of switching hardware, but these days I, I think there's a, a general feeling that it's, uh, it, it's sort of uh, declining in hardware and in software. So I came into the whole process really biased toward software. And as the, I, I think, as the, the chair and the, the vice chair, you were expected to be a, a little bit more impartial. And I'm hoping that you can provide a, a counterpoint uh, to, to the, uh, uh, my, my own opinions. Uh, for me, one thing that has always been a bit uh, dispiriting in networking is, is the gulf between you know, the more hardware-ish implementation. So if you go to a switch and you've got a certain way of managing that switch on the software implementation. Uh, and in the old time, it didn't matter because there was a clear separation of what was a network element, a router, a switch, on what was an endpoint, and the responsibilities were different. But when you come to virtualization, uh, the endpoint take on a lot of things which look like stuff we had in the middle of the network, you know, vSwitch, for example, uh, routing become more complicated. And so the idea is that those are two completely separate worlds working on, the, uh, on their own pace and having totally different standards, different way of doing it, was difficult, you know, in a sense, you, you want more unification. Uh, and so there was SNMP, of course, for the dealing with address switches or the CLI, the Cisco CLI, but when you go to Linux, everything was different. And so for me, it was appealing to try to uh, bridge a bit the gap between hardware and software and have something which was a bit more common. Of course, it's hard because the constraints are very different, you know, the, only in the, the cycle, the life cycle are very different between hardware and software. But the idea of having some a bit more universal API was appealing to me. Uh, and so that's why we, you know, in the work group, we try to listen to both viewpoints. Um, I don't know how successful we were with that. I mean, there was some success in trying to compromise between the two. On, uh, you know, on from the start, you know, OpenFlow was, you know, as you pointed out, your your intent was that it would be something that would be implemented on hardware switches. Uh, but you, at that point, you had only hardware implementation on only rough idea of what the hardware was doing because, of course, a lot of vendors keep everything proprietary and exposed API. 
And so, yeah, uh, for, for me, we try to involve the hardware expert as much as we could, and we try also to keep our feet in software with, you know, implementation and so on. And so that's one of the things. But it, wa it was very hard because the two communities are, are very different in, in, in the ways, uh, in culture and everything. So sometimes a, a compromise is when you come up with something that, that pleases both parties, but I think with OpenFlow, we often ended up with something that, that displeased uh, uh, both sides. Yes, yes. And I think, I think something that we ended up embracing more later on was letting the, the hardware requirements and the software requirements sort of drift or the, the implementations mm -hmm. so that we, the earlier versions of OpenFlow sort of expected that you'd be able to just use the OpenFlow protocol to program them regardless of what kind of switch it was. And uh, you know, it just became sort of untenable because the hardware was constrained, the software was continuing to just have a lot more flexibility, but obviously without the same speed as hardware. And we later on started embracing more just that you could have features that didn't have to be implemented on all the different platforms. Yeah, and actually, you know, the, it's during 1.1 that there was a lot of discussion uh, when it came to multiple table. And so up to there, 1.0, the OpenFlow model was a single table. So you had a classifier, and then you go to a rule on a set of action, and that's fairly simple. But of course, you've got a lot of reason why you want to go with multiple tables, a pipeline of tables. And there was two main schools of thought on how to do that. And there was uh, the hardware usually do that with specialized tables. So each table is specialized. You go to uh, L2 tables and L3 table. You may have ACL, QoS, and so on. That's one way of doing that. But on the other hand, the open flow software people or more open flow you know, academic as well, because there was also the academic people, um, were more interested in having a multiple table to be a set of generic uh, open flow 1.0 table. And, you know, you could see that playing during the 1.1 uh, discussion on its the second version that went to the open for standard, because basically the software, and especially the application people, kind of uh, managed to push that somewhere. Uh, but after what's happening is that I was the one that started to introduce the notion of capability to start to understand more what the hardware is capable of doing it. And that grew up, and in 1.3, we had a table feature, which allowed you for each table to query what is supported. And that went uh, later on into a new working group uh, with TTP, a table type pattern, which was also describing the capability of hardware switch in terms of what it can do uh, in, in terms of the table pipeline. And so that's kind of the way we were trying to reconcile the two. Of course, the problem with that is that it points the complexity to the controller. So suddenly the controller need almost kind of driver or, you know, a lot of smart to figure out, you know, this is my intent, how I will be able to use that pipeline with all those res weird restrictions to be able to do what I want to do. And yes, I agree that maybe we were not exactly where we wanted to be because I don't think it was completely usable that way. Yeah, but I, th I think that where hardware is going is is becoming much more flexible. So you see chips like those produced by Cavium or Barefoot. And I think that's really, now you could start to see how the goal of OpenFlow could actually be realized. Because like you said, that the controller was ending up to be very, would have to be very complicated to work with all of these switches. And you basically would have to push down a different set of flows for each hardware that you wanted to go down to. And so having a much more generic way to, to program hardware um, makes the controller writer's life much much easier. Yeah, as the caveat there is that those programmable implementation of hardware are more costly. You know, pro programmability and flexibility as a cost. And so it depends on the design. So if you look at high-end design, you will be able to have a lot more programmability. But for low-end design, the programmability is going to be limited in terms of, you know, maybe only a few tables will be programmable, only a few rules. And uh, because on, on the, the low end, things will still remain fixed function pretty much because of cost. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of presentations from Nick McEwen in particular where he says that as these designs get bigger and bigger, the uh, percentage increase in cost or an area to make things programmable goes down. I don't know if, if everybody uh, buys that point of view. 
I, I personally don't buy it. I mean, if, if you look at, uh, you know, in terms of generic processing, ASICs are way more efficient on FPGA. FPGA are way more efficient on processors. And that has old, been holding for quite a bit of time. So One of the things that surprised me that I, I, I came into this whole thing very naively was that I expected that, that, that what we came up with in OpenFlow would actually influence the, the ASIC designers. And I, I don't know if that actually ever really happened. Um, my, my, my first encounter with uh, that, that should have sort of told me that this was totally wrong uh, was uh, pretty early on in Nasera. We had someone come in from a, an, an ASIC manufacturer, and uh, we, we wanted to talk to them about the possibilities for, for what we were working on. And they basically came in and talked to us for a while. Uh, uh, determined that we weren't going to buy uh, thousands and thousands of chips and said, oh, okay, you can't buy any, uh, and we're not going to talk to you anymore. So I can tell you that, you know, for me, I was involved in, in my company uh, on, uh, we are designing some ASIC, uh, some switch ASICs as well, uh, mostly for campus, not for data center. And so I had a lot of discussion with ASIC designer and as we were designing those ASICs, we were talking of OpenFlow with them, and I was lucky to have this connection with them. But is, there is a lot of inertia, and also everything is need to be have a budget, which is that uh, every time we're asking for a feature, you know, we were looking what kind of budget, how many square millimeter extra would it cost, etc. Because, I mean, also, we are not doing high-end uh, ASICs. I mean, we are doing mid-end. We are not doing the biggest router. We are doing uh, switches. Um, and, and so all, so they were going toward programmability anyway, even before OpenFlow, because of a lot of different encapsulation on features they needed to support, which is that, uh, you know, there, there is a vertical model, there is a number of features they need to support in the firmware, and they decided that having some programmability was a way to be able to implement those features. Also, programmability had, a no, uh, had another advantage is that if there is a bug in hardware, you can't fix it with the programmable pipeline later. So they were going to programmability, and so there is a number of small change or small tweak we were able to do in the design, which were not costly to make it more open flow friendly. And those, but those were low-hanging low fruit. And I can't see that, you know, with the design, there is only so much you can tweak because it's, you know, the cycle are long, there is a lot of risk, a lot of testing. It's, it's very expensive to uh, design and build those chips. And, and, and very often, what ends up happening is that you reuse the, the previous design and you tweak it. And so, you know, it's not like there is a three-year cycle for an ASIC, but even the, the overall architecture is, is lasts much longer because you use it over a number of ASIC. And even as you change, you reuse part from the from earlier. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, uh, at HP, we uh, tweak our ASIC to be more open for friendly to have the feature. What ended up happening with the ASIC, which was released, was that uh, the stumbling block was software, which is that the hardware feature are there, and the software really doesn't allow you to really, because it has a flexible pipeline where you can program some table, not as flexible, for example, as before, but you could define your pipeline and say, I want a table that match those, those, those fields and have those actions. You could do that. But the software support wasn't uh, finished because, again, cost and so on. But the hardware was done because it was just an additional, a small additional amount of design compared to where they were already going. Does that make sense? You brought up how OpenFlow added features to describe what the switch actually supports. One of the things that really surprised me when I got into it is that it's actually quite difficult to explain what the, the switch supports in many cases. It seems like it's not very orthogonal to what you'd expect. Yeah, uh, and you know, we, we had multiple versions of that because there was an earlier set of capability around 1.1, then in 1.3 we did a table feature which was more expressive, and then it went into the t table type pattern, which was an even more expressive way of explaining things. But yeah, no, we, we, uh, there is all kind of interesting restriction on limitation, and you can only use that on that and so on, that is, are difficult to express. Yeah, you're right. One, one other complication too is that the, uh, the switch ASIC providers also considered a lot of that information proprietary, and so they weren't enthusiastic about exposing you know, how their tables were set up and how one flowed into the other 
um, without some sort of NDA in place. So a lot of them weren't enthusiastic about having that be really expressed through through um, TTPs and uh, given to the controller. Yeah, on, on it's, it's normal because every time you expose your weakness, your competitor will try to hammer you on, that, on those weaknesses. Yeah, it always seemed a little odd to me though because I would imagine that uh, that information probably leaked um, pretty heavily because it wasn't too hard ever to get the uh, to get the documentation about what the what the ASICs, you know, in terms of the high level um, function block. So I imagine most of the competitors, if you only have a couple of people who are producing these these ASICs, that they've got to all be familiar with what they are. So I'm not, it was never quite clear exactly what who they were uh, keeping that information from. Yeah. And there is also all the ways the threat of patents. You know, so somebody could figure out that their patents is being violated. In general, there there seemed to be sort of a, a default of secrecy in the sort of the, the hardware uh, side of, of the house uh, that, that made it kind of hard to get some real community engagement when the hardware vendors uh, were, were involved. You know, hardware communities are always harder because the barrier of entry, you know, for, for software, open source, it's simple. You just have a PC and you get going. I mean, in networking, it's a bit more complex, but fortunately, we have we have tools like Mininet, which allow people to dive into open source very quickly. Uh, because before Mininet, you know, when I was deploying things, I had to deploy a number of servers, connect things in the right way. But yeah, when, when you want to do hardware, it's a bit more complex, less people. So there is less of a community to start with. I yeah, I, I guess the the height of my frustration there was when ONF introduced a hardware vendors only uh, working group where uh, apparently they were willing to talk to the other hardware vendors about whatever it was they talked about in that uh, that closed room, but they weren't willing to talk to anyone else. And uh, and then uh, uh, later on they would tell you about OpenFlow features that they didn't like, but they, they wouldn't come to our working group meeting and, and, and discuss them. Yeah, I mean, that that's was a tension between the the more the engineering side, which wants things to be open on fairly logical, on the more political side. I mean, in all those standardizations, there is a lot of money on the line getting your stuff in the, into the standard. And so uh, over time, you know, uh, politics has played on, you know, if you go to IEEE, uh, there is definitely politics on, on top of the engineering on making sure that standard go into the, the way the big vendor wants it to be. And so in ONF, we were, uh, you know, coming from a more open source perspective. And so that's why things were more open, and especially, you know, in the extensive working group, I was trying to make sure as much as possible that it was, you know, based on, uh, you know, technical discussion on leaving politics out of it. But it's, it's normal that those vendors were used to a certain pattern of working on, uh, you know, on used to politics. And, and you know, for, for the biggest vendor, Politics is a very useful tool to get the market the way you want. That actually brings me to what I, I felt was one of the most positive things that we did in the working group. Uh, I don't know, I think it was maybe around 1.3 or so, there was a, a prototyping requirement that was introduced where uh, if you wanted to get a feature in, then you had to uh, build a, a prototype of that in some open source switch. Yeah, and that was actually something which was there in the early open flow. So it's not like it, it was reintroduced. Let's put, let put it this way, because even the Malign spec, the 1.1, there was a prototype implementation of 1.1, uh, which which was done. And actually, I was managing that implementation. Of course, there is always an uh, argument about the quality of that implementation. So yeah, we did that. I mean, before 1.3 there was a need of operating very fast and you know we were doing spec in six months which was you know uh, nobody could believe we could do that but we did it two of them 1.2 1.3 in six months which was fairly incredible and, and those spec actually ended up being fairly good of course it was a lot of cusp on page we were you know picking feature from ovs mostly and, and so in a sense those features were already prototyped because we were picking uh, existing feature. But yeah, we made it more formal after 1.4 because also we wanted to slow down the process and, and because you know we were seeing some of the period after uh, 1.3. Because for 1.3, we were careful to make sure that the feature were somewhat already existing in prototype, but we made it more formal after 1.4. But again, uh, you know, uh, some of... Uh, 
So that was a good move, but the problem there is that we, a lot of time we didn't have the manpower to evaluate those prototypes on, on do those prototypes on a lot of vendors. You know, we had way more ideas than people able to write spec and do prototypes. So a lot of ideas were falling on the wayside. On, for example, one of my favorite features uh, the encapsulation work, for example, wasn't including 1.5 because we didn't have enough manpower to do those things. And so sometimes it's a dual-edged sword, which is it, if you want to move fast, you want uh, you cannot really wait for complete implementation. And so that's why also for the implementation, the prototype, we the standards were fairly lax at the, at the end of the day. One of the reasons that we had the had that requirement that we introduced fairly early on was that um, there were a lot of proposals that we were getting that were pretty half-baked, and mm -hmm. so they. Um, had lots of corner cases that were not handled, and so that that was a goal was to try to make sure that people had thought those through, mm -hmm. which is where I think the prototyping requirement came from yeah. initially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, because there is only so much you can do evaluating, you know, kind of on on the paper. I felt like it was overall a big force for good, um, mm -hmm. but uh, it did have some perhaps negative effects, like there were a number of proposals that were proposed by people who just didn't have a way to get things prototyped. And so that, that meant that unless someone, some kind person came along and did the prototypes for them, they, it was very difficult for them to get their features in. Yeah. Especially on the, uh, for the hardware vendors. You know, the software vendors, usually most of them were already doing op uh, op op open source. And so it was easier for them to just spin a feature in one, one implementation. And in the end, uh, you and I, Jean, ended up writing the majority of the, the prototypes, I, I think. Yes, yes. I was lucky that being in a research lab, I had time to do that. And so, and, and also I was picking up, you know, feature. There is a number of feature where the people started writing the spec, but I ended up finishing the spec on, you know, because there is a main idea, but there is always a lot of how does it glue to the rest on error message, on corner case, on making sure everything. And I, I, you know, I was doing also a lot of speaking for those. But yeah, it, it, I was lucky that I was providing manpower for that. I can understand that in other group, if you don't have that kind of manpower, everything has to go slower or you have to be less ambitious there. I was always impressed by the amount of time that you put into OpenFlow. It, it always seemed like you were doing it almost as your full-time job. Uh, I was doing it at my full-time job, yes, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Very impressive. <laughs> to talk a little bit more about the sort of software versus hardware tensions, I, I think that we had uh, a few different examples of things where features were, were baked out of uh, this this compromise. Like early on in OpenFlow 1.0, we had a, a real debate on whether uh, support for matching on ARP fields should go in because we knew that some of the hardware could support it and some of the hardware uh, couldn't. And uh, I, I think we ended up adding it, but it was uh, really uh, uh, controversial. Later on, this sort of thing uh, came up uh, over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, one of the biggest discussion around that was uh, the multiple table, and which was done in 1.1, and, and, and we went toward more of a software pipeline there. But I mean, it was later on kind of fixed with the table pattern to make it more hardware. Um, yeah. But I think, but I think even the the multiple tables in 1.1 still had some of the hardware leak in. Like I think that um, tables weren't allowed to to go backwards, yep. mm -hmm. and there things like that. So it wasn't pure software. So no, there were no. there were always these compromises that yep. were being made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the ability to go backward uh, came up so that you could go back to a previous table came up over and over again, and it was something that we did uh, and do fairly commonly in in software. But bringing it up. Seem to upset some of the hardware-focused people. Even just being able to say that it's uh, allowed if your hardware can support it. Yeah, and I, th and I think that was another uh, frustration from the hardware vendor's perspective was that they really wanted to be able to lay claim that they were supported a particular version of of OpenFlow, and well, having. I, I think in particular they wanted to be say, able to say we support everything in OpenFlow. Right, and so then, and that was a lot of the. Which the, is understandable. The, yes. Is completely understandable, but it, w it ended up being very difficult because then, uh, then the spec ended up being very would be constrained for software. So there was always that tension that was going on. Yeah, uh, on you know where you need to, to when you need to get certification. So one way we got around that in my first implementation is that I implemented everything in software, 
which was very slow because it was going to the uh, management processor, which wasn't designed to handle packets. And then I was accelerating only the, the patterns that the hardware could do, which were, were the common pattern. And that's how we got that. And of course, the people at, at Stanford say, well, the software price is unusable. Well, yeah, but it allows us to have compliance and to claim that we support everything. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the performance uh, surprises people. So yeah. it, it's really probably hard to win. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I guess another thing is that I've, I've sort of been talking about hardware as if all hardware is the same, but of course there's all these different categories of hardware. You've got the, uh, the NPUs, the network processing units that are uh, almost like software, and then you've got your ASICs, and then there's uh, devices that are somewhat in between, and, and all of these vendors of these devices have, have different goals. So mm -hmm. probably uh, we, we should be uh, partitioning things or, or, or looking at market segments a little more finely. Yeah, and, and that was also another thing, which was in the discussion. We were mostly hardware versus software, uh, but we were not looking at those finer grain of differentiation of, of hardware. Yeah. Another place where sort of the secretiveness tended to, to leak into things was in terms of testing. ONF has a, a testing uh, and interoperability uh, working group, and they would hold these, these plug fests where people would bring their switches, people would bring their controllers. And so I always wanted to get test results for uh, the people who were using OpenV switch so that I could get bug reports back. But there were these NDAs uh, surrounding these events. And uh, because of these NDAs, uh, usually the only way I could get bug reports was through back channels uh, mm -hmm. where people would send me private emails alerting me to things. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you know, t testing is very important. And actually, you know, in the extensibility, we were writing the code tail on the Prus uh, open flow specification export, uh, effort. But the testing really is where ONF, you know, really made a difference as, uh, as compared to earlier. Uh, and, you know, we were supporting that. So uh, and it, it's very important. Uh, and there was all this plug fest on this testing to make sure we were getting toward interoperability, which was needed if you want to deploy that en masse. So, um, yes, it's it's very common in other uh, group, uh, and it was modeled after the, the plug fest in uh, I think in the USB consortium, and in those other consortium, it's very common to have those results secret again for all the r uh, usual reason, and so we were getting uh, anonymized uh, list of. Uh, issues and so on so on but yeah the communication was hard but i understand that they wanted things to be co kept confidential especially that those were products which were not in the market so the, you know so they were wanted to keep on the wrap the product roadmap especially that some of them were not even released and so on so um, yeah, uh, and that was hard, but for me, you know, um, we made it work, actually. You know, I put a lot of effort in getting a channel of communication on the trust between the two work groups so that we would get those reports, and they would, because at the beginning, they would not bother to do report about what was happening to collecting the information. And I, I said, well, those are useful because that's the way we improve the spec. And especially when we started to have the process where we declare 1.3, a stable release and have all the hardware vendor targeting 1.3 and then having the bug fix of 1.3, 1.3.1, 2, and 3, and so on and so forth. You know, the process dependent on, uh, you know, probably two-thirds of the bug report were coming through the plug fest, you know, on, on coming there. And so it, uh, for me, I was just pulling those guys and saying, you did a plug fest, where is the report? You know, give it to me and give us more detail. And that was very useful, uh, you know, in, in uh, addressing a lot of issue because what was interesting was that it's not like the spirit of the functionality was broken often, is that the way we were expressing things in the was ambiguous and people had decided to go the other way, you know, in terms of the interpretation. On that, I was very surprised, you know, I was saying, well, common sense would dictate that you would assume that and a lot of people went the other way. And so that's why we're addressing a lot of those issues on, yeah. And, and I think uh, another requirement that came later on, in addition to having to have a prototype, was that a test case had to be written as well. Yeah. And so then that became part of a, of yeah. a test suite that then could be used for, for compliance testing. Yeah, um, but the problem is there is that, yeah, we, we were, again, somewhat lax on that. So, so the, the test case were not made in a way that was uh, directly usable by the testing working group. Um, and, uh, 
you know, for me as part of explainability, it was hard to put a requirement on, on the testing working group really didn't uh, bridge that gap to come to us and say, it would be nice to have the test case into that format so that we can use it for our test suite. So for example, uh, all, for all the open vSwitch implementation of prototype, the test case were just in the open vSwitch test suite. And so, of course, you can extract them and put them in another test suite, but just kind of pr more proprietary in that sense. Yeah, I, I agree that at, when we started getting the reports, it, it helped a lot. Uh, initially, the reports took a, a long time, maybe yeah. even six months or so. Um, yes. I, I think that after a while, they, they got a little faster, though. Yes, be because it, it was it's establishing this pipeline of trust, trust that we are doing something with those reports, that those reports are not, you know, we, we have a <laughs> to say, saying, write-only documents, you know, document you write and nobody reads it. Uh, and so uh, we, we needed to showcase to them that there was a, a, a full cycle where we are using those reports, generating a new spec, which was addressing that and returning to, to them and say, look, you know, this, the, the, the full pipeline is working there in terms of uh, specking. At one point, I actually got a, a, a 1U server with a, a bunch of uh, uh, Ethernet ports in it and, and took it to the, the PlugFest at, at the time. Uh, to so that I could get the the bug reports directly by plugging OVS into all the controllers that were there, and uh, for me the results were really surprising um, because OVS worked immediately or almost immediately in almost every case, and so I I would ask the uh, the controller vendors, uh, okay, it it seems to work with what. Uh, I, I was expecting more problems, and they would say, well, of course it works with OVS. We test with OVS all the time. So we, we had kind of an unfair advantage there. Yeah, yeah but basically, uh, <coughs> OVS became the reference implementation pretty much. Uh, and because that's also something where, you know, we had a lot of discussion about reference implementation sh uh, because when uh, things were done at Stanford before the ONF, there was a reference implementation, which was a Stanford implementation, which was the implementation you guys did before joining Nocera. And that was a reference implementation. And as far as reference implementation, maybe it was not exactly the same place because it was probably a bit too complex. You want reference implementation to be, to be more simple. But at least it was there. And after that, we lost the notion of reference implementation uh, and there were talk of do, doing something in Python, which would be a reference implementation, so that, you know, especially for the prototyping, that would have made it easier to do prototype. But we never managed to do that, really. Uh, and that's something that some working group do, you know, have managed a reference implementation. We didn't, and which kind of punted on Open vSwitch being the reference implementation. So, so in the yeah in the early days we uh, yeah we had started um, Ben and I worked on the OpenFlow reference implementation, and uh, eventually we found that the architecture wasn't going to be suitable for performance reasons, and so then we we um, started working on Open vSwitch, and then the OpenFlow reference implementation continued on, but there were because there was this requirement of prototyping it, people would do their prototype, and so then it just sort of became a mess because everyone would just put on their little feature and it had no, co no coherence in design. And eventually, I think it just became just sort of unmaintainable, which is why it um, sort of went away, in my opinion. Yeah, but I think also that implementation, the barrier to entry was a bit higher because that was an implementation in C, and there was quite a lot of complexity, especially with memory management, because it was halfway toward trying to be performant. Yes, because originally we had wanted it to be, it yeah. was going to be what we used at Nasira, yeah. but then it, it, then the architecture wasn't right for that. But you're right, it was it was designed to be fast. Open vSwitch was even more complicated to add features to. But. Yeah, uh, and so that's why the talk were, was of having something in Python, which would be simpler, of course less performant, but easier to you know, modify at, at, uh, you know, for prototyping. Uh, and, uh, but we did not have the manpower to do that and, uh, because we are relying on, you know, manpower given by uh, companies. And that's something actually that later uh, group did better. For example, uh, um, Open Daylight, they required a number of engineers assigned to the project for the, the, the higher member tier, which guaranteed to them to have you know, manpower to do things. And we didn't add that in the ONF. We had the money, the organization, but not really the manpower. I, I think there might have even been something in the ONF charter that uh, that uh, uh, there were to be no reference implementations. Uh, it it, yeah, there was a prohibition on open source initially um, because of some of the numbers, if I remember. 
But yeah, politics again. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I'd forgotten that part. So uh, we've talked a lot about what happened, uh, good and bad, and, and so on. Um, it might be worth uh, shifting to the future. So does anybody have any thoughts on if someone's going to do something related in the future, what are the practices that should be adopted? Uh, what, uh, uh, what are the, the things that we did that, that should be avoided? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know really because, you know, every time is, 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 uh, context is different, the situation is different. So what worked may not work later on. One, one of the things which was uh, interesting was that compared to IETF, the uh, chair of the work group was given a lot of power, a lot of leeway in terms of designing things, which allowed to get things done very fast. Uh, and, it was, uh, and I was seeing it more like a traditional open source maintainer where you decide life on death of the patches. And uh, that's a bit of how I was the way I was sometimes acting with respect to feature, you know, which I, mm, no, this feature, I think it's too complex or too specific. Uh, and, and that was fairly efficient. So yeah, I tried to import a lot of, op uh, you know, because I was working in open source before, a lot of the open source way of working into that working group. On, it worked fairly well there, but that was also the academy, you know, me and, and so on. Um, and, and then after, you know, some of the politics uh, there, maybe I wasn't, you know, politic enough to get things going better because I think that that's probably the weakness where some of the politics there were not good and probably that's why, it, it, you know, things didn't sustain well enough with vendors. There were a lot of times when I think Justin uh, and I would say to ourselves that, wow, without, without Jean, this whole thing's going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you put a lot of effort into it. Yeah, and, and you have to wonder because, you know, you, maybe the trajectory of OpenFlow was already decided before, you know, by all the work, you know. Uh, because in a sense, there was, there was always this issue with OpenFlow, which is that there was a lot of things of the switches we couldn't express, like for example, simple learning, we uh, you know, L2 learning, we couldn't express that. On the other hand, it was getting very complex. And so you have to wonder, is it the right design point there? Uh, because you cannot express simple things, but on the other hand, you carry all this complexity. I think it's very useful for some class of application on some class of things, and especially you know, as the uh, API to program the TCAM, that's really the sweet spot of OpenFlow, which is that you have this TCAM, which can be used for ACL, QoS, or, or, or policy routing, and OpenFlow gives you the, the perfect API to program that TCAM and, uh, and for that. And so after, when you try to push it into other usage, that's where things get, get a bit more complex, and, and, and maybe we should have kept more toward the sweet spot there. Justin, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I think that the, I, I think it was, going to be a difficult road because of where ASICs were at the time and um, and the, the tension with software. It's hard to imagine how we could have solved all of that. Uh, I think the main thing that OpenFlow accomplished though was causing people to sort of think a little bit differently about how to program a network so that you know, centrally programming something as opposed to doing it in a distributed manner. Oh, oh yeah, that, that, that was a great thing, which is that with all OpenFlow on the Opera, you know, it made networking interesting again. And suddenly there was all this flurry of startup, you know, flurry of jobs everywhere on, you know, on uh, networking, which had been a bit stayed for a long time and with people working really on, you know, BGP, on core routing. Suddenly the, the part of networking, which was a bit less considered, became very interesting a lot of people. And that's when we got all the overlay and that was the basis of NIV. So in a sense, you know, without OpenFlow, you wouldn't have all those other efforts going on, you know, a lot of being pumped and it was ripe to happen so maybe it wouldn't have been open for something would have happened because there was this pent-up demand with all the uh, you know cloudification of everything cloudification of network cloudification of uh, you know NIV of uh, appliances um, but OpenFlow was at the right time. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, compare it to maybe, oh, maybe this other protocol was way better, but just OpenFlow open, uh, open just was the right, uh, uh, the right time and the right sweet spot to, to get things going. I, I agree that OpenFlow managed to make networking great again. <laughs> I guess that brings us to the future of OpenFlow itself. Does everyone feel like OpenFlow is dying? Uh, there still seems to be vendor support, and I see projects that are, are succeeding, uh, some academic, some that, that aren't. 
for me, you know, at some point it's clear that the technology will be less sexy because it's less novel. But it becomes entrenched. And, you know, there is a lot of technology which are entrenched in your network, like BGP, SNMP. And if OpenFlow, and I think OpenFlow is on the trajectory to be entrenched on, you know, to have a sweet spot. So it won't do everything, but at least it will do a number of things fairly well. And especially what is interesting is that there will be a new generation of people uh, leaving university which have played with Mininet, OpenVSwitch, which will understand OpenFlow. And when they come to the workplace and they say, oh, we have this issue, I say, oh, yeah, I know OpenFlow. We ca I can do that with OpenFlow, of course. And so that's why I think that it's going to be more pragmatic. You know, it's not going to be, let's try to revolutionize, but somebody will say, oh, We've got this issue of, uh, I don't know, denial of service or voice of IP not being good enough. Yeah, I know, I can't do that with OpenFlow, and they, they will do it. Uh, but it won't make the news, you know, it's just in the normal engineering practice, the way that, you know, a lot of DevOps and people, you know, they have a set of tools at their disposal, and OpenFlow will probably be one of those tools. Yeah. I guess that's a, a good point that uh, um, that no longer will someone put out a press release because they solved a problem with OpenFlow, but they still might solve the problem with OpenFlow. Yeah, and, and so that's why you know the vendor support I think is strong enough that it it will continue. And there is still people. I mean, you know, recently I think it was NoviFlow they implemented 1.5 in in their switches, and so you've got things happening. Uh, on, on uh, I think also the optical people are still continuing to try to implement OpenFlow into their design. So, you know, it's becoming entrenched in, in a lot of various places. But of course, it's not the grandiose vision that was at the beginning. It's just a tool. Right. I mean, I think that it's, it's a convenient way to program that sort of functionality into a switch. But I think that the controllers that are driving those switches have to be pretty familiar with the hardware that they're controlling. So the original vision of OpenFlow was that you could have one controller and then it's just speaking to, to switches and regardless of what the switch was, you could implement your policy. I mean, within you know constraints of you know, the number of rules or whatever. But um, I, I don't think that's happening. And I think though that, but having the, but having, it's a convenient way to program a switch that supports uh, OpenFlow, and so we use it quite a bit in our applications where we're using it to program OpenVSwitch. And so it's a convenient way to program it. Yeah, uh, on the, one of the advantages that, you know, an alternative would be so do, to do something like Cumulus, which is to expose or, or only exposing the hardware and put any software you want on top of that. But I think, you know, most of the vendors will want to protect their software firmware there to, to be able to have a clean API to so that you know the, the end user doesn't have to meddle with the software on the switch uh, on OpenFlow is that API. Of course, you know, the alternative is to go with something like Cumulus where you can pretty much put whatever software you want on the switch. The closest thing that I see to a likely direct successor to OpenFlow is probably P4, which has, at least for me, a, a more exciting uh, hardware story than, than OpenFlow does. But so far, I think you can only buy maybe one switch that that supports p4 so that 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 story isn't really written yet yeah on on uh, i think p4 you know if you look at the software it seems that the economic story there is probably ebpf that's what's happening currently in software in terms of programming networking for software and so because ebpf is going to be uh, you know, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's leading on being implemented as we speak. It's going to be hard to have a solution that does both hardware software. And f for me, P4 has a lot of quality. Uh, I'm I've got a few worries. I mean, some of the premise of P4, which is that to say, oh, we don't need, uh, we we need full flexibility with our headers. I don't truly really believe that, you know, we will still using Ethernet header, IPv4 header for a long time. So, you know, so th there is some something interesting, you know, some cute demos I've seen, but some of the premise, you know, are uh, we probably will retract back to something more uh, mundane because we probably don't need the full programmability all the time, which is probably too costly. I, I, I would agree with that. I think that the, the thing that's interesting from P4 is, yeah, I mean, I've, a lot of times people talk about like, oh, well, we can add new protocols, and those don't happen that often. But being able to have some flexibility into designing the tables, I think, is interesting. So, mm -hmm. for example, that the, the Broadcom ASIC would have the, the, uh, a certain set of tables, and then they would be consulted in different orders, where you'd have an L2, L3, ACL. And then on the Broadcom chip, it could be different. And so, and then if you wanted to program that uh, centrally, 
you'd have to know about the specifics all of all those ASICs. But if you have a lot more flexibility, then you can put the tables, you can dictate in what order packets are going to be looked up in and um, how those tables behave. I think that is interesting. So I think that's the, the interesting part of something like barefoot as opposed to, or P4, as opposed to you know, all of the new protocols that we're going to support with it. Yeah, but for me, you know, if, if you look at IPv4 routing, for example, you are not going to do IPv4 routing very differently from what it is today. It's just that there, there is a lot of encapsulation, for example. And so there, because there is so much entropy, it's good to have the programmability because, oh, you may decide to do NSH with a few more uh, fields there and to be able to do load balancing to the different VM based on that. But some of the existing functionality, you know, if it exists on work already, maybe you don't need to change it that much. And, you know, it goes for uh, the L2, the SNET, you know, uh, L3 routing, MPLS, you know, even MPLS is probably the other direction, which is MPLS. They made everything so simple in hardware to be able to go fast, which is probably pretty much the opposite of where P4 is going. All right. This has been a great conversation, but we're kind of running out of time. Uh, is, is there anything that either of you would like to add before we uh, start to, to wrap up? I mean, for me, I want to thank you for doing the podcast. It was good to go down memory lane for all this, those exciting times when we are doing OpenFlow together. And, and yeah, for me, I hope that you know, OpenFlow is useful to people so that you know, that's what we were trying to do. And, uh, you know, and we were always trying to see how we can help people. So we got a lot of criticism, but I think we are genuinely in our heart trying to help people with and offer something they could use. I always felt like everyone was genuinely trying to do a good job of, of representing their interests and, and trying to compromise. It didn't always work properly. And thanks for your effort in uh, leading that. I mean, I think that it wouldn't have been as successful as it was without, uh, without you doing that. I hope you understand that you're very much appreciated in the role. Oh, yeah, but you need different people at different stage, which is that I came at a stage where that's the person that was needed. And before me, there was, you know, the dreamer like you guys. And after me, probably more the politician. But that's, that's normal, you know. You need different people at different stage, so... All right. What's the best way for people to contact you if they have any feedback or, or, or questions? Uh, I probably they can send me an email. Uh, my email is uh, jean.touri at uh, hp.com. Yeah, actually, probably I should send the shortest one. It's jt at labs.hp.com. Okay, I'll, I'll throw those into the yeah. show notes. Yeah. Okay. And I'm pretty easily found in the OVS uh, mailing list archives, uh, and then I'm also on Twitter at justin underscore d underscore uh, pettit. I'll throw that in the show notes, too. Yep. And thanks very much, Ben, for having done this podcast. It was very entertaining. All right, great. And thank you both for joining me. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons attribution unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.